You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Transphobia, Satanism, and Zygon Pornography. Action! Excitement! Horror! Mad! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! Doctor frowned. I'm sorry, this is getting horribly convoluted. I can't die now. I know I'm destined to go through more biodata changes before my death. In this regeneration, my biodata is valuable enough to go through all this trouble for. The chef seemed irritated by this trifling point of logic. Supposing I kill you now, Doctor. Supposing Trask collects your body and his celestials recuperated to use as one of their agents. The doctor actually shivered at the thought. The shift went on. The recorporated doctor could pick up all the biodata the Time Lords think is so valuable before it dies a second time. Then somehow it finds its way into Kyoto's possession and ends up here in the vault of the cigarette, ready to be sold again. Causality is satisfied. I hate this sort of nitpicking, the doctor muttered. Hi, and welcome to What Mad Universe, the podcast about pulp literature. I'm Philip Rice, and with me, as always, is Adam Prosser. Hello. Uh, and we're joined again by uh, we're joined again this week by Andrew Hickey. Hi. Um, today we're continuing our ongoing look at tie-in novels. Uh, this time focusing on the expanded universe of Doctor Who. Uh, I've been into this show for quite some time now, but I've never much delved into the expanded universe stuff. Um, so I didn't really know what to. Uh, look for in terms of novels. My uh, thought for a selection was going to be Lungborrow, which is uh, sort of an infamous and controversial retcon of some stuff. Uh, either that or Human Nature, which is the only one to date, I believe, that's been adapted for television. Yep. Luckily, our guest today, uh, Andrew Hickey, was kind enough to recommend a book, Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles, part of the Eighth Doctor novels from the 90s. Um, so I suppose we should start this by talking about our individual backgrounds with Doctor Who as a franchise as a whole. Uh, uh, Adam, uh, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty limited. I mean, I basically uh, saw it a bit on TV. It used to be on TV Ontario, uh, sort of at a time when I would be in school mostly, or just after I'd gotten home from school, so I'd catch bits of it. Uh, it was this weird, scary show uh, that freaked me out. Uh, I saw bits and pieces of it. I was always confused by why the Doctor was always a different person. And um, <laughs> that was my uh, entire experience with it for a long time. Uh, then when the show came back in 2005, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get into this. And in fact, it was uh, Andrew's own writing on Doctor Who that made me... Uh, sort of engage with it a little bit. Actually, I only watched the first season of uh, the new remake, uh, and then I kind of let it lie for a bit, and then I read what Andrew had written about it, and I went, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. So I went back and, and started watching the new show from there. But I've, I've seen very little of the original uh, Doctor Who from the uh, from the, the 60s and 70s and 80s, and um, I've never read any of the spinoff information or anything like that. So I'm a bit of uh, a newbie to Doctor Who, uh, so you you two guys are the experts on that for right now, and um, uh, well, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but uh, <laughs> compared um, to me, you're an I, expert. Yes. Yeah. When I was a kid, uh, I knew of Doctor Who as a thing that existed, mostly as like 
The Simpsons would have, you know, the Tom Baker version as a background thing mm-hmm. or a joke or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and that was basically the extent of it. Uh, the first episode I saw was um, probably not the first, the best one to start with. It was the, the Parting of the Ways, Christopher Eccleston's last episode uh, before he regenerated into uh, David Tennant. Um, I, I didn't have, I had no clue what was going on. I just caught it on TV. It, it was a bunch of nonsense, but it seemed interesting nonsense. Uh, so I tuned in again later. Uh, it was um, going through reruns of the first season at the time. But how much of the, the original show have you seen? Yeah, uh, like so afterwards sort of afterwards, I, I uh, started watching the original. Um, uh, just sort of, um, at first, just random episodes that were recommended. Um, uh you know, City of Death and, you know, the, the big classics. Then I went back and sort of watched through all the, the doctors in order that I, of ones that I hadn't seen. I, I actually skipped the ones that have missing episodes because I find those hard to watch. I, I watched a few of them, but they're, they're kind of difficult. Uh, for those who don't know, um, the BBC wiped, uh, taped over a good number of uh, the early 60s episodes. Um, thinking that nobody would want to watch them. Uh, not just this show, but others. But this was one of the hardest hit. Um, so there's a lot of episodes which just don't exist in their proper format. And they're only like people recorded, you know, the sound off the TV or whatever. Um, and it's really low quality and sometimes hard to watch. But, right. um, but that, I, that imagine, the... I imagine, uh, you know, for... for uh... Yeah, so but as two Canadians, we're kind of, you know, we, we you come to it in a roundabout way, and it, it's not a huge part of the culture until the new show. That was when we all started sort of paying attention to it, I would say. Yeah. Um, but for Andrew, I imagine being British, it was a bit more... Uh, it was a bit more ingrained into your life. Is that <laughs> just, just a bit, yes. Um, yeah, I, I... I... I was watching Doctor Who from literally from being born because in Britain in the 70s and, and early 80s it was you know um it was Saturday night Saturday evening family TV everybody watched it um I I know I I, I was writing Doctor Who fanfic by the time I was six um I, I was reading Doctor Who magazine which for those who haven't read it is or wasn't it's not like a normal tie-in magazine by this point it, it goes into deep dive histories of the product of the production of like 60s episodes that don't exist anymore and stuff like that or it has done at periods during its existence i i knew i knew the names of the production staff on doctor who by the time i was like seven or eight you know um <laughs> i i basically taught myself to read from reading the target novelizations of doctor who stories which um, were a huge thing among British Doctor Who fandom. Um, basically, in the 70s and 80s, they put out little 150-page children's books based on almost every story of, that ever came out in, on the TV in Doctor Who, which is, you know, a couple of nearly a couple of hundred stories. We've all turned into books, um, and so I, I basically taught myself to read from those. I was read I was reading those when I was six, seven, eight. Um, and so it, it was very much an ingrained part of my life. Um, and then obviously the original series was cancelled in 1989 when I was 11. Um, and um, I sort of remained in the background of the fandom. I didn't become part of Doctor Who fandom again properly until the early 2000s. Because when you're 11, 12 and you're in a small town in the middle of nowhere, you don't know about organised fandom. Um, so it wasn't until I sort of got online that I sort of rejoined it. Um, but, you know... It when 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 I was seven or eight, I I could have told you the names of every doctor, the names of most of the companions. Um, you know, I I knew who my favourite writers were for for you know that 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 kind of thing. I had a, a very very deep Doctor Who background. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit like that's a little deeper than me, but that's similar to me with Star Trek, basically, yeah. where it was the thing that you know that that kind of brought you into science fiction. Uh, you yeah, know. And absolutely. It, it, yeah, it, it sounds like that. It sort of occupies that place. I it, it blows my mind uh, the degree to which, like you mentioned, Doctor Who magazine having this 
and and there were I know there's been a long running Doctor Who comics series I believe. In, in... Um, the co- the comics were the comics Doctor Who magazine started out in the seventies as a children's comic, a children's newsstand comic. Ch- comics in Britain have a whole different thing, but it started out. It was actually put together by a lot of the same people who did um, Warrior magazine in two thousand AD in the seventies. Uh, Des Skin edited it. Um, Alan Moore wrote for it, John Wagner, Pat Mills, Dave Gibbons, all, all these people were, um, were, were doing Doctor Who comics in Doctor Who magazine at the same time as uh, in the late 70s, at the same time they were doing 2000 AD and Warrior and all those magazines. Um, but it, it very quickly developed an adult audience reading this Doctor Who, as it was then, Doctor Who weekly comic. And it became one of the first things where it... The little behind-the-scenes looks at looks at the production of the show got bigger and bigger, and the comic section got smaller and smaller until it became about eight pages of a fifty, sixty-page magazine, with the rest of which would be um, in interviews with the production designers, and you know <laughs> this this kind of thing. And that is still a monthly, ongoing magazine to this day um, that you can find in most larger British news agents. Um, it carried on monthly throughout the time that the show was off air because Doctor Who has this sort of hardcore fan base that just kept buying it, um, and um, and yeah, it, it's it's this really weird combination of eight or nine or ten pages of comic plus deep deep dives into into the production history of nineteen sixties TV. And uh, when did they start doing? Um radio uh or audio bro- uh uh stories of doctor who original ones i mean um the the, the very first one was actually uh, done as an album in the 70s it's a, a thing called doctor who and the pescatons um uh, which isn't very good um and they did a couple in the 80s uh, the first the first one they did in the, the first one they did in the 80s was a thing called slipback which was written by the show's script editor eric saywood and starred the contemporary doctor colin baker at the time during an 18 month period where they took doctor who off the air for a while there was they, they sort of cancelled it then uncancelled it then recancelled it now, and during the period where it was first cancelled, they did this um, little, it's like an hour long in total, but it was done as like 10 minute serial episodes called Slipback. And then they did a couple more of them in the late 80s, I think it was maybe in the early 90s, where they brought back John Pertwee from, uh, from the early 70s Doctor Who and did a couple of not very good stories with him on the radio. Um but then in 1999, I think it was, a company called Big Finish got the license to produce regular audio dramas. And from that point on, they started doing, they started out with one a month for a Doctor, new Doctor Who stories. And now they, they put out like one every three days or something and nobody can keep up and they cost about a million quid an episode. But, you know, um, that, that... Uh, I believe there was also um, unofficial stuff. Uh, a YouTube channel called Quentin Reviews did a deep dive into the um, uh, unlicensed Doctor Who rip-offs yeah. from the time. The, like, well, uh, a video series starring Colin Baker is like... Oh, The, 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 the Stranger, Stranger, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the, that, that, that was a company called BBV, which w- was around in the 90s. They, they, they did all sorts of weird stuff. They, they, did, they did a Zygon softcore porn film. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Zygon, when being you isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I know, I, I know, I know the bloke who wrote that. He he he, he, he said it was it was originally it was originally very different and much less porny, but they sort of. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, See, this is the kind yeah. of thing that just absolutely blows my mind that you can <laughs> do that and it will there'll be a market for it. And I mean, I know there's fanfic <laughs> and that always exists, but just the the degree to which the Doctor Who fandom is out there in UK, well, it just seems to be so much of the culture in the UK. And if you're a nerd, it, 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 it was a big, big, big TV show for decades. I mean, it, the original series ran for 26 years. For most of that time, it ran for six months of the year with weekly episodes. You know, it started out. The, the first few, the first two Doctors did 50 episodes a year. Um, then they cut down to 26 episodes a year till the end till the end of Peter Davison's thing. Then then it got to 13 or 14 weeks of the year. But for you know a 20 year period, this was on six months of the year, week in week out. Um, and so it became a huge thing. And the thing is, because of this Doctor Who magazine thing, in great part, a lot of Doctor Who fandom 
from very young started learning about like media production stuff. So you've got tons and tons and tons of people who were reading Doctor Who magazine, like people about 10 years older than me mostly, people, people who became fans in the 70s started reading Doctor Who magazine when they were about 10 in 1977. By 1987, 1990, this sort of time, they're in their early 20s, they've been reading all this stuff about how TV production works. And so you've got this generation of obsessive fans who know how to make their own stuff. And so they go and make their own stuff. The other thing about Doctor Who, which is very different from any franchise stuff at all, people think of Doctor Who as like a US science fiction franchise in it, or like Marvel or something like that in the way it works. It doesn't work like that. The script for the individual episodes are owned, the copyright is owned by the writers. Right. The BBC, the BBC owns the rights to the character Doctor Who, the TARDIS a few other bits and pieces that were created by BBC staff people. But the episodes, for the most part, were written by freelancers, which means things like the Daleks are... They're actually co-owned by Terry Nation, who wrote the original Dalek script, and by uh, and by the BBC, because a BBC staff designer did the design for them. Um, but like characters like the Brigadier, who, who was in the show throughout the 70s, that character is owned by the people who wrote the original script. Um, th- concepts like the Santarans and the Cybermen and K-9 and all these kind of things are owned by the writers of the original script. Uh, sometimes the uh, character design is not owned by them, um, which, is, which is less of a problem if you're making um, audio drama, obviously. Um, but that means that BBV, which was the company that did these sort of fan things, they basically had did two kinds of things. They would do either audio dramas with a character who would be called like the Professor or something like that, and would be played and would be played by a Doctor Who actor like Sylvester McCoy, or they would do stuff with all these characters that that because I mean the writers couldn't do anything with those characters that was real, you know, you, but. You know, they they would license Liz Shaw, the Doctor's companion from the seventies, for no money at all, really, because they they think getting some money is better than getting no money. So there was this whole video series called Probe, which is basically the X Files, um, but done on a budget of fifty p. Um, mm. Co-written, co-written by Mark Gatiss and starring most of the other members of the League of Gentlemen. Um, but but if instead of Mulder and Scully, you had um, Liz Shaw, the Doctor's scientist companion from the 70s, sort of reimagined as a pipe-smoking lesbian. <laughs> um, it's not its not necessarily a good thing, but it's an interesting thing. And it, it was a direct-to-video thing. And many, many of the people who were in that went on to do a lot in British media stuff later on. I guess it's because, you know, the guild rules for writing or whatever are, are better in England than they are in uh, than they are in, in America or Canada, where you know, oh, I, I'm not 100 percent sure how it would work in Canada because we don't have we don't have our own big sci fi franchise. But I imagine that, you know, like in Star Trek. What about you, Lex? Yeah. Is it Lex Canadian? <laughs> Let us never speak of Lex again. Um, <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's not it's not even just that. It's it's that it, it's that it, what, it, it was created before sci fi franchises were a thing. It was it was a children's TV program being put on being put on at five o'clock in the evening for for kids to watch. Um, there was there was no thought that merchandising was a thing. There was no thought that um, spin-offs were a thing. You know, right? It, but it but was wasn't just... it true that, that the Daleks became this huge merchandising boom, like almost uh, very early on? Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, and Terry Nation got a lot of money from that very quickly. Um, you know, the, the, there were. It, it was a huge merchandising thing for the 60s, which meant there were like two different kinds of toy and a comic strip appearing in, in um, a magazine and, you know, um, that that kind of thing. But, but, it, but it, the, you know, it was a big enough thing that, you know, there were novelty records called things like, I want to spend Christmas with a Dalek, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, but the show wasn't set up to do that. Uh, in fact, originally it was meant, it was intended to be a very serious program that would teach kids things and wasn't going to have any bug-eyed monsters in. But then they sort of got this bug-eyed monster script and they were they were they didn't have the time or the the money to to 
to do anything different, so they they just went with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the that was the funny thing. From what I understand, it was meant to be an educational show, and it completely veered off in another direction. It was it was much more decentralized in uh, the UK, from what I understand, uh, including um, it wasn't even formally a, a Doctor Who spinoff, but of course, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is in some ways it seems to have grown out of the culture of doctor who from what i can understand oh absolutely yeah Doug- douglas adams uh, basically he um was he wrote three doctor who stories in the mid 70s and he was taken on as the script editor for doctor who um while he while he was um uh, at the point where he started working on Hitchhikers, and he was basically writing Hitchhikers in his off hours while he was working on um, Doc- Doctor Who as the script editor for a year. Um, he also, the third Hitchhikers novel, Life, the Universe and Everything, was cannibalised from a treatment he wrote for a Doctor Who film called Doctor Who and the Cricket Men, which was yes. actually recently re-novelised by a Doctor Who writer called James Goss, who sort of turned Life, the Universe and Everything back into the Doctor Who story. It should have been. And it, it, that's quite an interesting read. Yeah. And also, uh, there's elements of Shada put into um, Dirk Gently. Uh, yeah. Dirk Gently. Yeah. Um, so, but it shows you how like that was the ground from which a lot of British science fiction grew. Like even shows that had nothing to do with Doctor Who, just as American shows sort of grew out of Star Trek, and then later movies grew out of Star Wars. In Britain, it yeah. seems like, unless I'm completely wrong, it seems like everyone kind of went to Doctor Who as the baseline. Um, they they did either Doctor Who or Quatermass, um, uh, mm. depend, depending depending on which kind of science fiction you do. But science fiction adventure stuff was all was all Doctor Who. Um, sort of disturbing dystopian science science fiction stuff was all Quatermass. And th- those were the two things. And obviously Quatermass influenced Doctor Who. Um, but th- those were the t- the two routes from which all British media science fiction comes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and then that the only bit of Quatermass I saw was uh, a recording of a live performance they did in the two thousands, I think. The two thousand five one, yeah, with David Tennant and Mark Gatiss, yeah. yeah, which was just just after he was announced as the Doctor, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was a remake of the original fifties Quatermass yeah. stories, which are which are fantastic TV. They're very 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 bleak, and I don't I don't like the worldview, but they're fantastically well made. Hmm. Oh, okay, so that's yeah, and that brings us around actually, which is really interesting that they would do that. That they be something would be on TV, and then they do it. They turn it into a movie immediately, and it wouldn't be a huge change. It would be sort of acknowledged. Of course, that brings us back to Doctor Who because Doctor Who had a film, uh, the Peter Cushing film that they made in the nineteen sixties. Two films in two films in the sixties. Yep, made by made by the Amicus team, which were actually um, very closely. Uh, they were the same. It wasn't actually made by Amicus, but it was made by the same people who made Amicus films, who were largely the same people who made the Hammer films as well. I mean, Peter Cushing stars in them and so on. And their adaptations of the first two Dalek serials, um, Doctor Who and the Daleks, and Doctor Who uh, and the Daleks Invasion 2165, I think it's called. I can't remember the name of the film. I've got them on DVD. But, um, and those were, those are actually, for people of my generation, they're as important. In Doctor Who, as um, as the the TV series itself, because these films would be shown one or other of them would be shown at pretty much every bank holiday, public holiday, um, every bank holiday in Britain. Because um, during my childhood, because Channel Four had a different channel from the BBC had the rights to these films, so they would show them at every opportunity. Um, so that's those became as much a way of experiencing Doctor Who for for people of my generation as the TV show itself was. Mm. Uh, even though they, they were originally made in uh, 64 and 65. Right. I and and they, it's quite different. For, so this was when it was still the original Doctor was on TV, right? Yeah, so, William Hartnell, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it's a it's basically a different setup, right? Like he's he's acknowledged to be a human being and he who just has a time machine, I think, in that. And his name is actually Doctor Who. Yeah. Like, that's well, his last those, name. Those things aren't... The thing, the thing is, a lot of what people think of as the Doctor Who mythos was sort of accreted over decades. Um, Doctor Who wasn't created as a, a, a Gallifreyan Time Lord. Um, the original, original backstory was that in 1963, 
um, when they were first putting together the production notes for this for the show was that the doctor was going to be a fugitive from a, a war in the future in uh, a thousand years in the future um, and that was that was the original idea but that was never put into the text and the thing the thing is doctor who changed production teams about four times in the 60s and people weren't cons- weren't con- concerned at all about canon or about backstory or about any of those things their idea was we've got to make 50 episodes of this thing this thing in a year it's a kids show what what works this week you know right um yeah, that's television um, in general, and <laughs> until about the, yeah. maybe the eighties, and even then, that they were pretty loose about. Oh, yeah, we have to be very, very consistent about the backstory and everything. But yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it is interesting to me that that so many shows just like make up major concepts of their mythos just off the on the fly, and it wasn't you know Star Trek does that as well. I mean, there's all kinds of huge aspects to it that they clearly hadn't thought of until they suddenly appear on the show. Um, but so that... um, I feel uh, Doctor Who continuity is sort of a contradiction in terms in a lot of ways. Yeah, like right. uh, there are several ways that Atlantis um, was destroyed within the yeah, continuity of the show itself. Three times, twi- twice in a period of one year. Once they did two different <laughs> yeah. destruction of Atlantis stories, just be- just because that's what that's what they had, you know. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that's canon is that we should take a break for our sponsors. Uh, we'll be right back on What Mad Universe. How does Crazy Taxi stack up against, say, Papers, Please? And what's the one 3DO FMV game that gives Mario Party a run for its money? Find out on Hardcore Gaming 101's Top Games, where we objectively, definitively, and scientifically rank the games you nominate for our ever-growing list. HG101's Top Games, twice a week, every week, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hey, Lassie, what are you doing here? Timmy's in a well. Sequelcast 2 and Friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time, like Harry Potter, Hellraiser, and The Hobbit. And sometimes the hosts talk about video games and TV as well. And now it's part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Oh, Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. Like, even though this wasn't, you know, something that the show thematically meant to do originally, <laughs> it seems like that sort of idea definitely leaked into Doctor Who almost maybe more than any other big sci-fi franchise that's been handled by multiple hands, except possibly some of the superhero stuff. Uh, because then you get to the period where uh, where we're, the book that we're going to discuss here, finally, um, uh, originated, which is when Doctor Who was cancelled uh, in 1989. And for about 15 years, other than, I know there was a TV movie uh, in, yeah. I think, 96, which introduced That's Paul right, McGann, yeah. Uh, yeah. who's the Doctor who were actually, who's actually in this book. Uh, but it sounds like from that period... Uh, fandom kept Doctor Who alive, just as the fandom had kept Star Trek alive in the 1970s, uh, as yeah. we talked about in our last uh, show about fandom. And and to a certain degree, Star Wars was kept alive in the late 80s and early 90s, although that wasn't, that was a huge cultural thing, and it wasn't quite as much of a, what wasn't quite as much of a, oh, we have to keep it going for years. But, but it's, it really sounds like Doctor Who, uh, was yeah was being kept I say the fans but of course I mean the the gray area where people who are huge fans of the show would become you know spin-off novelists and all the stuff you were talking about with the YouTube stuff so yeah tell us a bit about that period uh, Andrew right well in 1989 Doctor Who is cancelled um now the company Target Books which is bought up by Virgin um, by Virgin Publishing, um, they've been publishing these books, which I talked about before, the, the target novelizations of Doctor Who stories. Um, and eventually they run out of stories they can novelize. There's like four or five stories where the original writers won't let them, let them do it. Mo- mostly, actually, Douglas Adams ones, because he says he's not going to let anybody else write novelizations of his stories. And the, these books, they, they can't afford Douglas Adams' wages, you know, for, <laughs> to, to write them. So so the, the Douglas Adams stories remained unnovelized until the last few years. But um, 
you know. But eventually, they're publishing these books about once every six weeks, and eventually they run out of TV stories to novelise. But there's still clearly an audience for these things, a big audience. I mean, not massively huge, but they're selling in their tens and hundreds of thousands regularly, and they can put one of these out every month or so. So, so what they do, Virgin starts up a new line of books called Doctor Who The New Adventures, um, which is um, marketed as a continuation of Doctor Who just in the novel form. Uh, the, first few, the first few new adventures are written by a mixture of new writers and by people like Terence Dix, who was the script editor in the 70s, who wrote a couple of very important stories that everybody remembers, like the, the War Games, which you mentioned before. That was, that was co-written by Terence Dix. And Terence Dix wrote about 100 of the Target novelizations. He sat down and hammered out these things in, in you know, two or three days, 150 pages, just going from the script and writing these things. So he was, he was the canonical Doctor Who author, if you like. So they get him to do, to do a, a couple of these early ones. They, get, they also get a couple of people who have been writing for the show in the last couple of years, people like Ben Aronovich, to write new novels in this series. Um, and, and they start getting a few fan writers in, people like Paul Cornell, who obviously now is very famous novelist and comic comic writer and stuff. Um, but he, he was a writer, and he actually adapted a thing he wrote as fanfic for a fanzine into uh, uh, one of the first few New Adventures novels. And this sort of... This was a new level for Doctor Who writing in many ways. People, people were astonished by Paul Cornell's novel. Now, Virgin had an open submissions policy. They were basically the only publisher in the world that would just you could you can send in a submission and they would they would read it you know they had submissions guidelines and so on but they they were they were looking they were looking for new writers in a way that nowhere else was so you have this combination of this very media literate fandom this publisher that is taking open submissions and this there was a, a not there was a hands-off thing from the licenses, the BBC, because they didn't really care because Doctor Who was a dead programme, you know. Hmm. Um, so, you, so you get this thing, with a, a period which is very like the um, 80s Bam Pow comics aren't just for kids anymore things. Lots of novels where they, they've, dis they've discovered that breasts exist and that guns <laughs> exist and things like this. You know, but uh, think, think, things that people were thinking were very mature for for a Doctor Who story. And so some of the, some of the new adventures are actually very 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 good novels indeed by just any standard. Some of them are very dated now. Um and they they've got that very mid 80s uh, even though this was the early 90s so it's also a cyberpunk and people people in leather, leather rebels you know there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that sort of dynamic stuff but but there are a handful of really very good writers writing for this this series as well the new adventures and these are coming out one every once every month up until 1996 a lot of great writers writing for them um and Ru russell t davis's only novel up until last like last year when he novelized rose was a doctor who new adventures thing mark gatiss wrote for the new adventures line um uh, like i said paul cornell wrote one of the very early ones he, he was a consistent writer through this thing um gareth roberts who who was a horrible transphobic bigot but he he became a major writer on the tv series from 2005 through to a couple of years ago um these these people were all writing in the new adventures line but the new adventures line runs for about five years um and then a lot of these people have gone on to have proper jobs mostly writing for tv and things like that a lot of them go on to write for um, soap operas and things like that so they're not writing it as much anymore and there start to be a new second generation of fandom coming in to write these things um and then at, at the same time as this the paul mcgann tv movie happens and because of this um the bbc lanks, yanks the doctor who license off virgin and starts their own new line the the doc, the eighth doctor adventures they're called virgin actually carries on publishing new adventures novels without the doctor in set in the doctor who universe and featuring a companion that was created for the books called bernice summerfield um and lawrence miles who we're talking about here he actually wrote one in that in that line called Dead Romance, which is a fantastic book that I urge everybody to read. 
Um, but that line died out after about 10, 15 more novels without the Doctor in, because, you know, it didn't have the Doctor Who name on it. Um, now, the eighth Doctor Adventures starts out very, very badly. Uh, and it still has a reputation among Doctor Who fandom of being not as good as the new adventures. The reason for this is it starts out with a novelisation of the TV movie. The TV movie wasn't popular anyway, and the novelisation is written by somebody called Gary Russell, who doesn't have a great reputation as a writer. Um, you know, he, he, he he's a big, a big name fan, but but he he's... He's he's a fan wanky writer, you know, and, and this is a novelization of a thing that people don't people didn't weren't much impressed by anyway. The TV movie has a bad reputation, so you have yeah a, a couple a couple of the other early eighth eighth Doctor adventures are actually very good. Um, there's there's one called um, Vampire Science, uh, I think I think it's called Vampire Science by um, a fr- friends of mine actually John Bloom and Kate Orman. That that that's, uh, yeah Vampire Science was the second one. That's good, <clears throat> but the the, the combination of the eight doctors and war of the daleks in which are two of the first five stories in this series it basically means that from that point on the eighth doctor adventures among that generation of doctor who fandom have a reputation that's just in the um then alien bodies comes along the sixth eighth doctor adventure and even the people who hate the eighth doctor adventures line generally love alien bodies um and lawrence miles had written he'd written one new adventure which wasn't a particularly particularly good new adventure he'd written um two things for the bernice summerfield new adventures one of which dead romance is a fantastic novel but I, I don't remember if it came out before or after Alien Bodies, but it's sort of very much around the same time. But Alien Bodies hits Doc, Doctor Who fandom in much the same way that Watchmen hits comic fandom. <laughs> and indeed, Lawrence Miles is the easiest way to describe him for people who don't know Doctor Who fandom. He is the Alan Moore of comics uh, of Doctor Who fandom. <laughs> he is this writer who completely reinvents the whole thing. Uh, but he, uh, but he's, he's Alan Moore in both the good and bad ways. Um, he 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 is he has some mental health problems, um, and he is also somebody who it is apparently very difficult to get on with in person. Um, I I've talked to him once. I did an interview with him for a radio program, and he he seemed fine with me. But he puts a lot of people off um, in that way, and his online persona um, is irascible and he is opinionated and so he a, a lot of people hate him personally um while still using a lot of his ideas and alien bodies is, is meant as a standalone novel but it ends up setting up a huge big plot arc that carries on through most of the rest of the eighth doctor adventures for, for um well up until the early 2000s up until about 2001 when they do, they do a, a universe reboot thing in them um, but it's it's just because, like like with your random Alan Moore and Green Lantern stories, people just keep pulling out more and more ideas that he throws away in this and turning them into a big thing. Um, but Alien Body is, is so impressive. The, there is a cliffhanger in it at the end of I think it's the the cliffhanger at the end of chapter nine, um, where it's reve- where it's revealed what the object is. Um, Stephen Moffat, who at the time was talking to Lawrence Miles, he is no longer talking to Lawrence Miles. Uh, but at the, but when the book came out, he came up. He went up to Miles and said, "That cliffhanger is the best cl- the best cliffhanger in the history of literature." And I include Mister Holmes. They were the footprints of a gigantic hound. This this is how this is how much of an impact Alien Bodies had on the Doctor Who uh, on Doctor Who writing at the time. And this is why I suggested that we talk about this one because. Um, not only does it introduce Faction Paradox, who are the main villains of this big arc that goes up until 2001, and who have their own spin-off series of novels that continues to this day that I've written a novel and a couple of short stories in. Um, and they did have their own spin-offs of the, of the spin-offs. <laughs> there's a series called The City of the Saved, which comes, out, which comes out of Faction Paradox. And there's a whole series of books about that, which are great books. Um, but uh, it, it sets up this whole Time War arc. Um, but also... If you read it, there are lots of little... Uh, there are tons of ideas in there. All of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who... Certainly all, all the Matt Smith era Stephen Moffat Doctor Who is riffing on ideas mostly introduced in Alien Bodies, but not doing it as well. 
Um, so you know, and that's that's what Alien Bodies is now. Lawrence Miles himself is is he is a postmodernist postmodernist novelist uh, of the. In my mind, he's comparable to somebody like Kurt Vonnegut or something like that. Um, uh, but he also has the uh, the ideas of a Grant Morrison. Um, but he's um, but but where where Grant Morrison uses superhero comics as his mythology, Lawrence Miles uses um, Doctor Who as his as his mythology, and basically creates his own mythology out of that. Um, and this is the book where that starts. Hmm. Because I, I noticed, yeah, I, I sort of went, oh, they're talking about the big time war, which is a big part of the uh, the new series. And I wasn't sure if that had been in the original series, although you did mention that he was originally conceived as being a refugee from an alien war. So I, I, I'm he, he unclear was, on that. Um, the, the, he, was, he was conceived as a refugee from a war, but that was never stated in the series. That was just purely backstory in the initial like documents that they created they created to sort of figure out what they were doing. Um, there was a brief time war story in the pages of the Doctor Who comic in the late 70s, actually, actually written by Alan Moore. There was a story called The 4D War. Um, and all the new adventures people and stuff... Alan Moore... Didn't did not like Doctor Who at all. He's not a fan of Doctor Who. Doesn't like it. But he was a jobbing comics writer at this time, so he would go down to the pub and talk to Doctor Who fans and find out what it was they liked. And then he would write these four or five page backup stories in Doctor Who comic. Not even the not even the main Doctor Who comic story in, in Doctor Who Weekly as it was at the time. He would write these little back backup stories about about Time Lords and stuff like that. And they were plundered by all the writers in the eighties and. The, um, but no, but this ta- this time war thing was was not really picked up on. Lawrence Miles is a big fan of the Doctor Who comics of the seventies. This this is his Doctor Who really, as much as anything else. Um, and he picks up on the idea of ha- of having a four dimensional war, but he but he makes it into a much 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 bigger thing. Um, now this this war is it has been specifically stated in a lot of BBC stuff. That the that the war that Lawrence Miles creates in this book is not the same as the Last Great Time War, mm-hmm. and there are important differences in this. Um, the Last Great Time War, as talked about in the post two thousand and five Doctor Who series, has as its enemy the Daleks, and it's frankly a bit boring. The yep. enemy, the uh, the enemy in Lawrence Miles's Time War is the enemy. That's it. We don't know anything else about them. They are conceptually an enemy. There are lots of hints dropped as to what they are. Um, but then they're not just the Daleks. There's something bigger and scarier and more interesting than the, the Daleks. Um, they, they could be future humanity. They could be alternate universe time lords. They could, they could be a, a concept, an idea. Um, and it's a much more conceptual... You know, the Time War, as it is in the post-2005 TV series, is some Daleks and some Time Lords go through space and time, shooting at each other with machine guns and lasers, until one one day, you know, boom, Gallifrey is gone. The, you know, that's... The, 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 the Time War in... I mean, it's it's originally it's just it's just backstory in alien bodies, and it doesn't seem to be intended as an arc, but it becomes an arc up, uh, for the next twenty or so Doctor Who novels. Um, some of which are, are written by Lawrence Miles, some of which are written by good writers like Simon Boucher Jones and uh, Lance Parkin and Paul Cornell, and some of which are written by very very bad writers. So there's. Um, but they're taking up this initial idea and running with it, sometimes in ways that Miles didn't intend, and sometimes sometimes in ways that he's indeed retconned in his own work in the Faction Paradox spin-off series later on. Um, but it's this much more conceptual, weird thing than anything than anything that the TV series has. But the but the Time War in the TV series is very clearly inspired by the Time War in the Eighth Doctor novels. Um, the, the, that's where. Like, like I say, particularly Stephen Moffat's stuff is all riff, it's all riffing on alien bodies in particular. Um, that that one novel as much as anything else. So yeah, there had been the concept of a time war had, had but it had appeared in like this four four page backish backstory thing in Doctor Who Weekly, and Lawrence Miles made it into a a big thing that became became the driving force for the line of novels. 
more or less by accident. You know, it wasn't like I say, it wasn't intended as as I am. Go- I am going to set up an arc here. Hmm. Yeah, the uh, on the show the um, the time war. I when they they initially started, or it was from the new series from the start, but there was always little hints, and they would drop you know phrases like the um, uh, the nightmare child and the um, and the um, would have been king and his armies of meanwhiles and never worse. And it sounds really conceptual, but when we finally see it, it just they're shooting yeah. lasers at each other. Um, and th- yeah. this feels more like uh, this book feels a lot more like that interesting uh, time yeah. war that I was imagining in my head. Absolutely, absolutely. And I can recommend very much that you that you get hold of the Faction Paradox series of novels that's been out of this, even more than the Eighth Doctor novels that, that continue from this. And there's a whole series of novels that run from that that are that are set in that are set in and around the Lawrence Miles conceptual time war. Some of which are fantastically so they're just wonderful novels, um, and and also one written by me. Faction Paradox Head of State from Obverse Books by it, folks. Um, I, um, Not an unbiased source, but yes, I, clearly yeah. we can see where you came from. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah um, but yeah, yeah, my my favorite concept from uh, from this one was the Anarchitects. Um, so we're yeah. sort of um, conceptual viruses who destroy um, uh, structures. Yes. Or uh, rewrite structures, rather. Yeah. Well, you're instead of bombing it, it just rewrites yeah. the architecture of a city. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe we could just and just uh, to have Philip uh, say it for a bit. Maybe you could just give us a quick uh, idea of what happens in this story specifically. I know it's not uh, it's not a, a plot heavy book so much as it is a bunch of different encounters with different people. Uh, but maybe you yeah. Want to basically. The book. Um... Uh, a bunch of characters show up to an auction. There's a, a relic who, uh, and the doctor shows up, obviously, and uh, and uh, his companion, uh, who seems to be who's original to the books, uh, Sam Jones, um, and they do do a Smith and Jones reference, which the show did later on right, uh, yeah. with Martha. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it turns out the relic is the doctor's body from his uh, last regeneration in the distant, distant, his own distant future. Um, who had fought in, or who had engaged in this time war, which hasn't happened to the Doctor yet. And um, the various sides of the time war are trying to get um, get a hold of it because it contains sensitive biodata that could either help them win the war or is some sort of um, uh, trophy for them. Um, right. So various factions include uh, the Faction Paradox, which is a, uh, a voodoo cult, uh, based around Time Lord technology, mostly uh, populated by humans, and uh, they worship paradoxes um, because it's sort of like the the taboo in Time Lord culture is paradoxes, so they just take that and run with it like Satan worshippers. Yeah, they deliberately uh, create paradoxes, right? Yeah, Yeah. and their their, uh, control, or their uh, deity is called Grandfather Paradox, which is a great right, one right um, yeah. who seems to be a time lord who became conceptual in some way yeah like who there, turned there, himself there, into there are hints in some of the books and it's, it's made explicit in a later book which lawrence miles has later disowned that grandfather paradox is actually the doctor in in a future um regeneration of, so, of some kind um cause, oh because so like might... a valyard sort of thing yes uh but because of course, remember that that um, even before he was called the Doctor, the Hartnell Doctor was called, called Grandfather. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the, there is that, and there are various hints, but but it's it's meant to be ambiguous. But of course, as these things often are, when um, you when you find um, when you get less good writers working working with good writers' ideas, you do tend to get um, it, pe- people making hints into explicit things and removing all the ambiguity um i've found my copy of uh, faction paradox um uh, the the book of the war which is the the thing i was talking about earlier and i can read you the the section on um grandfather paradox in any world and time where faction paradox's presence is known or even suggested it's possible to purchase various items purporting to be representations of the father's grandfather blurry photographs paintings icons statues and so on 
They're usually sold. They're usually sold by swindlers and, and counterfeiters who specialize in the lore of the spiral underworld, in the back rooms of magic shops, or via ads in one of the more specialized specialist magazines. But even in locales where the faction is welcome, the founder tends to be represented by ab absences. A statue of the grandfather rests on top of the Ersatz Nelson's column in the Eleven Day Empire, for example. Although nobody has ever been able to make out the details from ground level. Um, th this kind of thing, you know, it, it's all, it's it's all very, very ambiguous. Very well. That's that stuff. ties into the, there's another idea. The, another one of the factions in this book is the Celestis, uh, who are yeah. um, the they um... literally. Uh, yeah, sorry, safe. You can say They're uh, Time Lords, specifically from the uh, Celestial Intervention Agency, which is a thing from the show. Um, yeah. Or the, sort but, of the. Um... Oh, go on. Well, it's sort of a thing from the show. Um, it's 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 a one line joke from the show that became that became a thing in fandom. The, uh, there's a Doctor Who story from the seventies called The Deadly Assassin, which is among other things a parody of the Manchurian Candidate, uh, set on Gallifrey, and so. Uh, pe people wonder if the CIA are involved. And the CIA in this is the Celestial Intervention Agency. Ho, ho, ho. It's a joke. But of course, fandom being fandom, it, they, they decide that the Celestial Intervention... This, this whole backstory builds up more in fandom stuff than, than even in the spin-off novels and stuff. The whole backstory builds up about the Celestial Intervention Ag Agency having their tendrils and everything in, in the... the um, in the world and um, in the universe, and uh, having affected everything in history, and being the secret masterminds behind everything, hmm. and so Miles then turns these into the Celestis, uh, who are purely conceptual entities who, who don't have any existence in reality at all. Right. They're just they, ideas. They they edited themselves. That was their way to protect themselves from the time war was to to stop existing physically or even temporally and just become pure ideas, which of course you can't yeah. kill. And it it is which interesting was sort of ripped off in the in the end of time later with uh, that was uh, Raslan's plan in in that in that episode. Yeah. It, it seems like it is a commentary on the CIA or at least on you know authoritarian figures who uh, you know because the CIA is constantly accused of. Uh, you know, trying to alter our culture and our art and our and the ideas that we yeah. consume, and uh, here they are literally doing that, becoming pure ideas uh, in order to influence uh, the course of human events, as they do in this book by, for instance, uh, planting ideas in everyone's head to get them fighting each other in a crucial scene. Yeah. Um, you know, that does feel like they're 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 goofing on the CIA. I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. But um... no, absolutely not, absolutely not. Yeah, um, Miles's politics become much more explicit in his next. Um, there's a two two part book he did called Interference, which is basically Doctor Who versus the the arms dealers. Um, you know, he he is a, a very very left wing um, in a, a sort of generally radical kind of way. I, I don't I don't know that he he would put a particular label on himself, but he he certainly. Uh, he, he's certainly on, on the left and thinks of himself as very radical and acting that acting that way. Um, so yeah, um, it, it, he, he is he is not a, he is not a fan of, of organizations like the CIA. No, and it, it is interesting because that, like in a more broad way, we're, we're we're talking about something specifically political here, but in a more broad way that that comes down to sort of where science fiction's been uh, because everything we're talking about, like you're talking about, you know, spinoff novels for a canceled TV show. Uh, the, yeah. And it's full of, yeah, I can tell just by reading this book, you know, it's full of really fascinating ideas and great ideas. And it is, you yeah. know, it, it it kind of needs a novel to exist, although, of course, Doctor Who was a TV show. I, I'd argue that television is a medium where you can have long conversations about ideas, even though it's it's not seen as oh, an intellectual absolutely. medium at all. Uh, but but it is interesting that because you can, you don't always have a huge budget or for production reasons, it's not always able to do you know to focus on the big special effects. Uh, so you do Absolutely. actually it does open the room for and from what I've seen, especially the old Doctor Who, there is actually a lot of room to just sort of throw in some really intriguing, crazy ideas. Uh, and that's yeah. and that seems to have been what happened. So that's a fascinating aspect of Doctor Who to me, even though I haven't encountered a, as much of it as as you guys have. Yeah, well, the thing about Doctor Who is that it was growing up in a very different environment, a very different media environment from the environment that American TV shows were growing up in. Um, Star Trek was... Uh, American TV was film but for the small screen. And Star Trek 
was made at film studios. It was made at Paramount. I, mean, I know it was originally Desilu, but they were bought up by Paramount. And, you know, it was made. It was made in Hollywood using film, single camera editing, that kind of thing. British TV came from a theatrical tradition. Um, to the extent that um, in the 1950s there was a, a, t a TV adaptation of uh, 1984, actually, which I, I just mentioned that, but it was actually made by some other people I've referenced. It starred Peter Cushing, who of course played the film TV Doctor, and it was uh, adapted by Nigel Neal, who wrote Quatermass. They did the the they showed that adaptation twice in 1955, I think it was. They mounted the whole thing live twice. We've got video, we've got recording of the second one, but they didn't like film it and then show it again. They mounted it live, including getting an orchestra to play the incidental music twice to, for two different TV broadcasts, huh. uh, like two weeks apart. And that that it, it was that live at the, the time. So it, everything was coming from from a theatre thing, not from a cinema thing. Doctor Who is was never a show about people about people talking about ideas it, it was a, it was a show about people fighting space monsters you know but it came up from that culture and so and particularly because it started out with this sort of educational remit where in an early doctor who story they would just stop and take a take a time out to like show how you get water in the desert by like op opening by digging a hole in the sand and lining it with plastic and stuff and letting condensation happen that kind of thing uh, they just stop and do that um and even as late as 1980 you've got a, a story like state of decay which is a vampire story set in, set on another planet um and there's there's a thing there where the doctor explains about vowel shifts and about, about linguistic change um, just just a quick aside, but enough that an interested kid could follow it up and learn about phonology, um, and that's that's not a tradition that American, that North American TV really has. Partly because it's North American TV is all advertising based, and partly because it's all film based. So it's much more visual, and there is much less there is much less of using words to communicate it's much it's which british tv in the last 30 years has got become a branch of film like american tv has and i think it's the worst for it because the the old the older british tv had its own thing i actually do think there is a degree to which and of course i'm not as exposed to british television to, to compare uh i do think there is a certain degree to which you could say uh, you know, U uh, U.S. and Canadian TV does have, I mean, more so than film anyway, that it does have, have uh, converse, like it, it does put the focus more on just two people talking because you, again, you don't always have the budget for crazy things. So if you're going to keep people's interest, you have to at least have a, an interesting scene between two actors. And, um, oh, yeah, yeah. and, and I mean, Marshall McLuhan even said in, in, uh, when he wrote about TV, he put, he called it a, a cool medium because, it couldn't be strongly visually charged. I know that's been a yeah. controversial statement that he made, but I think I, I get what he's saying, and I think it ties into what you're saying there that it's that it's a it's a medium. It, in some ways, it's set up to be a medium of ideas, even though it's been resisting that its entire existence yeah. and trying to be something else, arguably. But um, yeah, it, that that that's just a very interesting point. And but, um, uh, the the BBC say that the um, costumes and stuff. Uh, uh, I. On one of the DVDs, uh, Doctor Who uh, from the Sylvester McCoy era that I have, um, they were talking about um, how they were trying to consciously shift away from future stories because the BBC um, costume department was was good yeah. at like uh, mm -hmm. at per period pieces, but yeah. asked them to design a future outfit and they just come up with something really weird looking. Yeah, yeah, that's that's of course always the problem with science fiction when you're doing it for a visual medium, which again might be something that why it. Now I'm not going to say Doctor Who was meant to be spin-off novels and radio dramas and comics, but th those allow you much more range when it comes to uh, to science fiction and things like that. And as Absolutely. we've as we've but at as, the same time with with books, you don't get the the actors and they bring a lot to it as well. Of course, of course, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But but as uh, it is as 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 Andrew's been discussing here with all the different, you know, the fact that there, you know, Doctor Who's gone to spinoffs of spinoffs 
and uh, you know, it's it's you know, radio and comics and 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 uh, and and uh, novels, novelizations and things. Just the fact that you have all these different iterations of it, and and again, just as with Star Trek, when it ended in the end of '60s, and you had a decade's worth of just nobody really. I'm not going to say nobody cared up at the top because yeah. they they were trying to keep to get Star Trek back on the air pretty quickly like uh yeah. but it, they weren't able to do so for a decade. Meanwhile, you have all these incidental media keeping it alive and creating all these sort of alternate realities. And Doctor Who is of yeah. course particularly suited to alternate realities because that's essentially yeah. what the show's about. You don't even have to say whereas everyone in in uh, in other things and even in in superhero comics where they probably don't need to care as much. They start talking about, oh, well, it's continuity. Well, that's continuity. That's not continuity. Um, Doctor Who, you don't even have to care, although I, I imagine they do. But you don't have to care. There because... are a lot of fans who do, there are a lot of fans who do care very much, and then there are fan, fans like myself who, who say that caring is completely missing the point. And there, there yeah. are endless arguments about this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The whole unit dating controversy and season six B and yeah, all yeah. that stuff. And I mean, also, even just the fact that it's a show where the lead is constantly changing. And I mean, even just from my limited experience of, of the, especially the old show, uh, it, it looks like it's kind of the kind of show that very literally reinvents itself constantly. I mean, by yep. if you're going to be on the air for 30 years, you have to do that. But it literally has a mechanism of like, okay, it's this kind of show. And I know that, for instance, it was an Earth-based, vaguely spy influence show for a while i know yeah. it was a cosmic yep. horror show for a while i know that yeah. there were different attempts to do different sort of arc based stories and 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 the new show doesn't seem to do that as much but there's at least some avenue for that and uh it, it's just it's really interesting to me that it's it's such a malleable franchise even more so than than something like star trek which you know has also done the thing of you know having different casts and different eras and, and changing up what it is quite radically over the years but doctor who you know puts that to shame where it's you know it yeah. may as well be a different show sometimes from what it was part of what's interesting about doctor who is that it works within the limitations of its medium you know the whole regeneration thing is because they needed a new actor for the mm -hmm. for the main character um and um yeah that sometimes uh, lack of budget leads to interesting ideas right or lack yeah. of you know um budget and, and real world concerns and that's well, do, Andrew do you have any uh, final thoughts there or are we how are uh, we just that, just that we didn't end up talking all that much about alien bodies but it is it's is definitely a book that I would I would recommend every, everybody who has any interest in I mean it's it's a fairly good standalone book it, as long as you know that the character the character of the doctor exists hmm. get and uh, get hold of a copy of alien bodies it's out of print at the moment so it sometimes goes for quite expensive amounts on, on amazon and stuff but get hold of it it's well worth reading yeah yeah i'd second that it's it was very good it, um it's probably a cliche but it it did have a douglas adams feel at, at points like the just the sheer amount of ideas dropped yeah. out at you Right, yeah, it's it's as someone who grew up reading Doug, Douglas Adams far more so than Doctor Who. I mean, uh, you can see how there's a there's some some uh, some inspiration, for, or not not necessarily inspiration, but it it grew out of the same uh, soil yeah, as boots, yeah. Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams, who of course Douglas Adams was literally a Doctor Who writer. So, uh, and I love that. That is a that's a great uh, that's a great sort of uh, so, sort of uh, era of writing or a, a great style of writing that I really enjoy a lot. So that's great. Well, that's all the time and relative dimensions in space we have this week. We've been your hosts, Philip Rice, Lord President of Gallifrey, and Adam Prosser, the Time Lord Victorious. And joining us was the oncoming storm, Andrew Hickey. Uh, do you have anything to plug? Um, well, uh, like, like I said, I've actually written a novel in the Faction Paradox universe uh, called Head of State, which again is fairly... Um, it's it's fairly self-contained, although the the very last sentence means more if you if you know faction faction paradox stuff. Uh, but the the rest of the book um, is fairly self-contained. Uh, that's available from obversebooks.co.uk, where you can also find a book I wrote on the Patrick Troughton Doctor Who series uh, serial, The Mind Robber. Uh, that's in their Black Archive series. I think it was number five or six in their series. 
Um, and I have a, my own podcast, A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, which you can find at 500songs.com. That's 500 numbers, songs.com. Um, that's currently up to um, the 110th episode. I'm just getting into the, the 1963. It's a chronological history of rock, rock and roll music from 1938 to 2000. Yes. Great. Well, uh, we always enjoy having you on. And, um, uh, thanks here. for joining us. Uh, our producer was the Tin Dog, Alex Ross. And our theme music was written by Jack Burek, whose, name, whose real name is Hidden. Burns and the Stars and the Cascade of Medusa herself, blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, just a, just a reminder, uh, we both have Patreons, uh, as does Andrew, actually, uh, which help us, in our case, it helps us pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time. I know this is an extra long uh, version that uh, only Patreon subscribers will be able to listen to. We we talked for it's probably going to be twice as long if you're if you're listening to the Patreon version. Um, uh, you also get various bonus materials, cut footage, uh, illustrations, and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L, or Adam Prosser two S's, or Never Sleeps Network dots. Neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or SpearHalfOck with an F underscore for Philip. Uh, so until next time, uh, there are worlds out there where the sky is burning and the seas asleep and the rivers dream. People made of smoke and cities made of song. Somewhere there's danger, somewhere there's injustice, and somewhere else the tea is getting cold. Come on, we've got work to do.